Today on This Week in Startups, we have an Ask Me Anything featuring Range CEO and co-founder Dan Pupias. This AMA was recorded live in our Twist Slack channel. To participate in weekly AMAs and discuss all aspects of startup life with Jason and our community of 25,000 founders, join us at thisweekinstartups.com slash slack. This episode is brought to you ad-free thanks to our partners Dell, Silicon Valley Bank, and Clavio. Well, hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here. My name is Dan Pupias, CEO and co-founder of Range. Um, in past lives, I worked at Google and Medium. Um, I'm excited to answer some of the questions. So I guess I'll just jump straight in. Um, so Laura asks, interested in learning more about what made you want to build a company that focused on remote work? Do you find it personally challenging not to be in the same physical space with your team and the companies you work for? Um, so we actually didn't start Range to be remote first or a remote work company. We um, we were mostly interested in making work better for everyone. Um, and we did a lot of research into some of the challenges organizations face as they scale. Um, and what we noticed was that remote companies are generally more intentional about how they set up their processes. Um, and they also, the problems that the co- uh, remote companies face are essentially amplified versions of the problems that you, you face in person. So um, what that meant was that we, that as we started solving some of these problems for teams and how they communicate and collaborate, um, it resonated most with remote companies. Um, so our, our early customer base was around 80% distributed. They were in multiple time zones. Um, so, and then I think we did predict the, the, the advent of remote work becoming more popular. And then obviously the COVID situation has really pushed that to the forefront and everyone's been um, accelerated into that, that, that mode of operation. Um, and then from a personal point of view around the not, not being in the same physical space, um, I actually don't find it challenging. Um, I do like working in an office. I like having a desk. I like having a mini kitchen and I like randomly bumping into, bumping into people. Um, but some of my best collaborative moments have been with people not in the same office of me. Um, so back on, uh, when I was in Gmail chat, uh, I used to joke that I would collaborate with Michael who was in Seattle more effectively than people who are outside my office. Um, so I actually think that the physical distance and the, the location isn't a factor it's there's other factors and, uh, being remote can amplify collaboration issues. All right. So next question from Nick, um, what advice would you give around developing and sticking to a product development roadmap as a first-time founder? What's a good way to establish and calibrate sprint lengths when looking at various aspects of the build? Um, so one of my favorite quotes, which my team get really bored of me um, quoting is, planning is everything, the plan is nothing. So what that means is the act of planning is very useful because it's a way of orienting yourself and figuring out which direction you should go. But once things are in motion, um, that the plan can be um, a liability. So what I would say is like sticking to a roadmap shouldn't necessarily be the goal. Solving customer problems is the goal. And you, you work out a roadmap, which is a hypothesis for how you solve those customer needs and getting alignment with the team. But you also, especially with an early stage company, you have to be very agile and flexible about that roadmap. So um, you need to be able to take in new information and adapt, adapt the roadmap as necessary. Um, so I would generally write it down. Um, you do these planning exercises, share it with the team, write it in the doc, have a manifesto, like 
whatever works for your for your team and then review regularly um, is 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 a starting point it's pretty straightforward um, in terms of calibrating sprint lengths um, I think one important thing to think about here is that there's two cycles that don't necessarily need to be um, combined so there's these cadences of communication which is as a team how do you um, come together communicate get aligned and align on the north star and then the second cadence is a cadence of work which is how do you do project planning and how do you do units of work so in some companies it's possible to have those be aligned so you might do a two weeks sprint on work and a two two week um, and then you have you align the, the work sprint with your communication cadence but in other companies especially as you grow different work streams have different natural cadences. So it might not make sense for an infrastructure team to do something every two weeks, but the R&D team probably is operating on like one week cycles or even shorter. Um, so, but you still need to uh, communicate across the company. So, so I would start with actually defining the communication of the, the cadence of communication, which is when do you start planning? So we at Range, we do a Monday morning briefing and we have two week sprints. We plan work for two weeks and then we we have a retro at the end or with the whole company. I, I imagine that that two weeks will stay constant for quite some time, but teams may start planning work in like two or three cycles, as we call them. Um, and then I think it's just being adaptive, like figure out how you're sensing into the state of the team. Um, how, how are you being productive? How are projects being completed? And then just being okay, dialing that up and down. Maybe maybe you actually don't want to do two-week cycles for a while and you want to sh switch to six weeks. That's totally fine, but you just have to be intentional about it. Henry asks, what are best practices around building a tight mission-driven culture when working remotely, given people are not interacting face-to-face -face physically on a daily basis and focus may be impaired? Well, I think there's two realities, right? There's the reality of, are you, being, are you building a remote company and setting out from the start to, to do that? Or have you been thrown into it? So if you, if you are building a remote company from scratch, then I think a lot of this comes down to hiring and onboarding and making sure that you're attracting people who understand the problems you're trying to solve, who resonate with the mission and um, are intrinsically motivated by that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people are now in this remote work situation where they haven't necessarily had to um, be able to build that, that foundation. So we're having to, to, to rapidly um, like, like redirect teams. So I think some, some tactics here are to just think about these um, sort of uh, rituals and um, like rhythms. And it goes back to the cadence of communication. Um, you have to complete, have this drumbeat where you're reinforcing why you're doing what you're doing and why it's important. And that has to ladder through the company. So there's, there's always that, um, uh, I'm not sure if it's real, but someone asking a machinist at a Tesla, uh, a SpaceX company about, what this bolt is for and this bolt is to get a man to mars and it was just that they understood that the working on uh, this small feature in a factory contributed to a big space program that would eventually get someone to mars like i don't know if that's a apocryphal or, or real but it, it gives you um kind of an idea it doesn't matter if you're a devops engineer product engineer someone working on the in um, it or um, people operations everyone should understand how their work ladders up to the company goal and that can be done in a couple of ways. Um, some people use OKRs and objectives, and then they have the objectives higher uh, ladder up. Um, you could give teams charters. So um, you have, say, the PeopleOps team's charter might be to build um, like um, build the best company um, 
or build, build a world-class team, but it could also be tied to the company, the, the company's mission. Um, so I think it's just about having that drumbeat of reinforcing uh, why you're doing what you're doing. Um, do it at the briefing, doing it at recaps, just keep, keep repeating yourself. Kevin, have you received any downstream investor interest since the start of mass quarantine across the US? Do investors see this as an opportunity? Um, yes. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how much I want to share here, but um, definitely I think there is, I, I, I think there's a lot of investors who are healthily skeptical of productivity and team software, um, especially in the HR space. And now they're suddenly realizing that there's a big opportunity here and the world has changed and they're now trying to to understand the market. Um, so definitely had a lot of out people um, doing outreach. Um, so definitely an opportunity. It's accelerating a lot of trends that we already saw in the workplace. And if you think about what the, the operating system for work looks like in five, 10 years, it looks very different to the stack today. Like we need a new stack um, to build companies on top of. Ciara, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, can you share a little about where you want to be in 18 to 24 months with range? How are you planning on scaling and what does your product roadmap look like? So I think ultimately, um, our goal at Range is to help teams be more successful. So in 18 to 24 months, I'd love for um, our customers to look back and say, yes, Range really helped our teams navigate this really difficult time. Um, companies going through a lot of transitions, it's really difficult. And I, I do think that Range can help them navigate that and build these foundations of, uh, for good teamwork. So I'd love, I'd love for people to be able to say that. That'd be a really good place to be. On the product side, um, currently we've been focusing on um, the team as the unit of work, and it works pretty well for for teams as a way of keeping staying connected and um, knowing what's happening. What we're looking for over the next year or so is to deepen value across the in, for the individual, for the team, then for the organization. So on the individual level, we already integrate with all your tools. So I'm pretty excited about some of the stuff we're doing around attachments and integrations to really uh, nail your personal workflow. So see range as a, a hub where all your all your work tools funnel into this place and it just makes it much easier to to, to plan and structure your day on the team point um, on the team value uh, we're, we're looking at um, how we can help support these cadences these rituals and these rhythms um, so when we look at that most high performing teams they have these really strong um, rhythms of the work so we see a, an opportunity for range to help build um, that cadence for different teams so each team can find their own groove um, and integrate into different um, moments of collaboration. And then the, the organizational layer, um, we're starting to collect some really interesting data across, across these tools and these updates and how can we provide intelligence and insights around the health and the functioning of the company. Um, so individual team organizational value, essentially. Nick Presh, how did you meet Evan Williams? What's the story of you leaving Google for Medium? And what are some amazing insights and lessons you learned from working with him? What makes him stand out as a founder? So I was looking around for what to do after leaving Google. I decided to leave and um, a friend of mine who had previously worked on Blogger with Ev introduced us. And I didn't actually know Ev was doing anything um, post Twitter um, and agreed to meet him. And I met him at the Grove on Mission Street, Mission and Third, and he was wearing a suit. And um, that might not sound unusual, but he's a pretty casual guy in general. And the first thing he says was like, I don't normally wear suits. I was just meeting Obama. So it's just like the super casual like drop of um, meeting, um, I guess at that point it was like pre-President Obama. Um, and we just started talking about what he wanted to do and what company he wanted to build. And it was just um, really interesting, really exciting. Um, at that point it was obvious corporation. Um, 
so it wasn't actually medium medium was just a word on a whiteboard that him and Bizard wrote and written up as one of the, the products we were exploring um, so when I joined there there was a a, a v1 of medium um, and then I started working on the v2 of medium like pretty much straight away and then that became the whole focus of the company um, so I think what more amazing insights I think um, Ev really taught me the power of storytelling. Um, it's, it's obviously it's like deeply ingrained into the medium culture and the platform and the product, um, but it's also a great way of building alignment and getting people to be really loyal and um, mission focused. I think medium has some of the the most thoughtful, um, like interesting people um, on the team, and and even the alumni community is very aligned and um, close knit. And I think a lot of that is to do with the kind of the cultural storytelling and the, the background to the sort of the mission. Um, the other story or other lesson I learned from him was around um, what it means to, to, to go with your gut. And so you often have these sort of sense of discomfort that something's not quite right. And, then, and that's like your gut telling you that something needs to be looked at. And I think what, what I learned from Ev is it wasn't about being impulsive and unintentional. It was about using that as a sensing signal. So you sense into things that, are, um, that your subconscious is aware of, that your conscious isn't aware of, but you then have to go explore it. So you have to then go explore what your, um, what your gut is telling you. Um, so it's kind of like an integration of the intentional and the, um, the, the unintentional subconscious. Um, that was really cool. Um, what makes him stand out was a, founder um i mean he's done it over and over lots of experience um and very um determined james really like the use of daily check-ins and achievement tracking within range to keep people on track how can we encourage these actions in important areas outside of work where people aren't directly incentivized for us to do so so one of the things we looked at with range was how to um, encourage a behavior that people may intellectually know is valuable but um, doesn't stick. Uh, so that's like essentially what a habit is. A habit is something that you do without having to think about it. So ev even the daily check-in or work planning is something that everyone knows makes them more productive. So I think HPR have a, a study on um, just checking in on what you're going to do with the day is makes you 15% more productive, something like that. Um, but a lot of people don't take that time at the beginning of the day because they just get they get caught up in the the rush of work. So we looked at these behavior loops and. Um, generally when you think of a behavior loop there's a cue um, something that triggers the behavior the behavior the thing that you actually want um, to happen and then you have to have some form of reward and that reward uh, reinforces uh, the behavior so for range we, we looked into that, that habit loop and we actually have multiple overlaying habit loops around the behavior so multiple cues and multiple um, essentially like rewards so when you're looking at other areas you have to think about similar things so with fitness what is the cue to exercise um, and what is a cue that will be motivating? Um, like, like as, as someone who exercises um, fairly regularly, a, a notification is not necessarily going to be the right cue to make me want to go out on a run. Um, but perhaps there's these other signals that you could provide as a cue, like my watch telling me that I'm now unproductive instead of um, productive. Um, and then what is the, the reward on the other side? And I think what we've learned from social media and um, also some of the principles we've applied to range is that there's a lot of value in social accountability um, in terms of the, the, the reward loop. Um, so I think if you look at Strava um, and some of these social meditation apps, um, like having that social accountability is a great way of having, of reinforcing that behavior loop. Um, 
And then once it's habitual, it's, 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 um, it's a habit, so it's easy to continue. Charles, what do you look for in a co-founder and what advice would you give to founders looking for one? Do they need to also, oh, do they need to? Oh, I guess, do they need to find a founder? And also Marmite, love it or hate it? Um, I'll start with the Marmite one, this is easy, I hate it. Um, also hate Vegemite for Australians. Um, so in a co-founder, I think when we were starting Range, it was really important to have um, a good spread of both skills and abilities and behaviors. And I think Braden, Jen, and I really comp complement each other really nicely there. There's, there's very li little overlap in our core disciplines. Braden's a designer, Jen comes from a people ops background. Um, and then from a sort of like behavioral perspective point of view, we, we all bring different perspectives to the table. So that's been really great. I think it could be pretty tricky if the founding team all comes from a similar background with similar focuses and similar skills. I think that will, it can make you a bit blinkered and a bit um, blind to opportunities. Um, so, th so that's, that's one thing is making sure that you have those perspectives and then looking for a foundation of trust. Um, we, you you will you will have conflict and conflict is good um if, if you can handle it and process it um eff effectively so i think what often happens is um founding teams um they they try and avoid that conflict and that creates this um kind of seed of doubt and a seed of lack of commitment to each other and that can that can eventually blow up into something and it, it erodes the trust over time um, so, so I worked with Braden in 2006, way, way back before we, and then we, we went our separate ways for a few years and Jen and I worked at uh, Medium together. So we, we both had a track record of collaborating and working together, um, which made, made us feel like it would be a good foundation. Um, and do you even need a co-founder? Um, I personally wouldn't want to do this on my own. It's really, really difficult and being able to lean on other people. If you're having a bad week or a bad month, someone else on the founding team can can step up and take a bit of the slack. So being able to ebb and flow between the three of us has been really valuable. Um, it's, 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 it's amazing when all three of us are firing on, on, on the full capacity all the time, but you know, in, in the current climate with um, impending doom at every corner, it's, like, it's actually really difficult. Um, so having three people has been really, really, really great there. Lizette, um, what should self-funding startups be thinking about right now and 24 to 36 months out? Yeah, I think I think this goes for anyone. We we honestly, no one knows what the world is going to look like two, three years from now, um, and it's all reading tea leaves and making predictions. So, I think the main thing is to think through various scenarios of what the world might look like and what is your hypothesis for the world, and it has to come from you. And that might be based on um, some you know very like optimistic recoveries. Or it could be um, um, something you know more more extreme, like are we going into a ten-year depression, and what are the impacts of of, of that on the world? Um, and then you can start kind of like um, laddering back from those from those scenarios. And it, you don't have to they don't have to be true or accurate scenarios. It's just a model for for, for thinking through how that's going to affect both your company, your business, your employees, um, your customers. Um, um, and that will help you kind of at least spot some commonalities which you can move forward on. Um, we're, we're just from a like range perspective, we're not even trying to look that far into the future. We 
we are looking into like next year, but um, we, we, we're not trying to look too too distant. We have we have ideas on the say from the product roadmap and the business roadmap for like first, second, third horizons going out longer than that. But in terms of planning, we don't know if we're going to have an office in January. We we shut down our office um, a month ago, and we do imagine opening office again, but we don't know if that's going to be January 2021 or January 2022. So that's a decision that we don't even need to think about because we just, there's no way we can get the information to to make that decision. What we can look at is the effects on our customer base and uh, the demand for our product and what that looks like. And then we can start building hypotheses around um, how that's going to play out over the next six, eight, 12 weeks, and then may- maybe going a bit, a bit further. But I think at this moment, we're in a very complex and potentially even chaotic situation. So it's really having these fast OODA loops, OODAs, um, observe, orient, decide, act, and then just being very agile and flexible about how you make decisions and how you um, change, change direction. Um, any tips on joining a small tech team as a new leader, especially fully remote? Um, a lot of this depends on your background. Um, if, you're a, if you've come from a big, com- big company and you're a leader there, it's just got, everything's going to look very different at a small company. And um, you kind of have to reassess what, what the role of a leader is um, um, and uh, rethink like, what, what, your, what your day-to-day job looks like. And I think one mistake people often make is that there's a kind of like three levels to work. Um, there's like, can you set the vision? Uh, can you write the playbook? And then can you run the playbook? And in a, in a big company, you can get away with, if you're a very senior leader, you can get away with just setting the vision and not, then not actually being able to write the playbook because you can delegate that to someone else. Um, and what I've seen a bunch is that people come into companies or startups with um, these great, great backgrounds and um, they can set the vision and then they can kind of like help people write the playbook, but then they can't run the playbook. And in a startup, everyone has to be, you know, getting their hands dirty and, and, and working on the ground. Um, so as a leader, you have to roll up your sleeves and, and act as an IC. So one way to th- think about this is you have multiple hats. So as an IC, you have your IC hat, then you have your, your, your lead hat. And what is the lead hat? Is it a coach? Is it a mentor? Is it a director? In a startup um, or a small team, it's much more of a, a mentor-coach role. So you're, essentially your mission and your goal is to set the environment for success. So it's ha- how are you sensing into the team's needs? How are you helping them navigate the organization or the, the product needs or the roadmap and how are you helping them um, succeed at their goals? And, and that's the main question you should be asking. Um, and that's the same whether you're in the same office as them or you're remote. The difference with remote is how are you doing the sensing? Um, it's much harder to sense into the team when you're not in the, in the office with them. So you have to think about what is your, what is your apparatus for sensing into the health and the success of the team. And it goes back to the cadence. Like what, is your, what are your check-ins? What are the t- check-ins at the team level, at the individual level? How are you, how are you asking questions and reviewing them? There's a, we have a blog post around five questions you can ask yourself at the end of every week as a leader to make sure that work is balanced and effective. Um, so um, you can check out range.co slash blog for that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's straight. But I think basically you, you can't direct, you can't be a director on a small team. You have to, it's more of a gardener. Like your role as a leader is a gardener. Like you can't force the roses to grow. You can set the conditions for the roses to, to bloom. Um, and that, that's like how to think about your role as a leader. Amanda, how did Google change in the seven years you were there in terms of culture and product roadmap? What was it like when you joined and when you left? Oh, wow. Well, I joined in 2005 and it was around 3,000 people, I think. Um, and then when I left, it was a lot bigger than that. Um, 
Um, but even at 3,000 people, there are huge areas of Google that I had very little knowledge of. So I worked on Gmail and in the sort of the apps world. So I had a fair amount of visibility into, say, Google Docs and spreadsheets um, and groups, but not into ads and analytics. So Google already at that point had kind of sharded the company into um, different focus areas, which is the only way you can effectively scale is to create these sort of like subdivisions. Um, um, but then in terms of the culture, I think just, I mean, scale gets more difficult. Um, the more people to coordinate, um, get, things get slower. Um, um, and, and, and that definitely took its toll. Um, many layers of management and, and, um, and kind of uh, reorgs happening more frequently. Um, I think there was one year where I had three, three VPs. Um, and for the most part, that didn't change day to day much, but it definitely changed priorities, which can can feel a little bit um, like a like a, a like a you're getting yanked around. Um, so I think I still think Google is a great company. I think um, it's just it's inevitably it's grown a lot bigger, and it's, and that's had, had caused a lot of changes in terms of the product roadmap. Um, yeah, I think it depends on the team. I think that this is the, another interesting thing about large organizations is that the the variance within the company can often be as much or more than the variance between different companies. So a team at Google and a team at Amazon might actually look very similar, but holistically Amazon and Google look like completely different companies with completely different value systems. So a, a team on say in the analytics org at Google might be very different than a team in the ads org or a team working on self-driving cars. And, and that goes to everything from culture to how they do product planning to how the leadership works. And, and that's just something you have to expect. So if you do join a big company or you are a big company, um, you, 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 can, you can navigate the organization to figure out the, the, the spot that fits you best. Ian, how has being an industrial designer and software developer given you insights for range and remote working? Are you a leader or a co-founder? Can you be both? So I, I have a master's in industrial design. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an industrial designer. Um, I, 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 I was trying to kind of broaden my, 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 my foundation. I was working in, in Sheffield in Northern England and um, so I was working at e-learning and kind of wanted to, to, to stretch out into other, other areas. So that's why I did my industrial design degree. And it's definitely gave me a lot of um, insight into the design process and user think, uh, um, design thinking and um, sort of customer analysis. So that's been really great is thinking is in building ranges, like how do you approach things from a needs first point of view? Um, so what is the customer need that you're delivering and, and, and laddering that back through the, the whole organization? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's given me any insights into remote working. Um, I, I did that degree back in the early 2000s, but I, I do generally think that when you think of an organization you're designing a product that the organization is the product and in the same way that you look at customer needs or user needs what are the needs of your your team and your your company and you have and it's, a, it's a complex problem because there's multiple stakeholders so what are the needs of individuals on the team what are the needs of managers the like other stakeholders and essentially you're building this network of dependencies or um in, in the organization and you can sit down and map that and um simon wardley is um, who has, been, has done some really interesting work around value chain mapping that you can apply to the organ uh, planning out the organization. So if you're interested in that more from an academic, uh, academic point of view, that's um, uh, check out Simon Wadley's work. Um, and then 
are you a leader or a co-founder? Can you be both? I think you can definitely be a co uh, both. I, I think everyone is a leader. Like, le leading is um, about having an idea and taking action towards the idea, about influencing other people. Um, so, so I encourage everyone in an organization to think of themselves as being a leader. Co-founder is not really a job, it's a title. So co-founder doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell you anything about what I do or what value I provide. It just means that I was there when the company was incorporated. So you can definitely be both. And then as the company grows, um, co-founder, it, it can be kind of like this a moral compass that can anchor the organization, which can be valuable, but I think it can also be harmful because it can, it can imbue authority where authority doesn't necessarily need to be as the company grows. Uh, so that's something to be careful about. Um, so we prefer to talk about um, what is your role versus like what is your title. And the role is a hat that you wear. And the hat can be taken off and given to someone else at different points in time. And as a, a small company, I, like, I do security, I do IT, I did a vendor assessment today. I, if, if we had an office, I'd take the trash out. Um, you know, the, I updated this, our address in like 20 different SaaS products. There's a lot of work that I do that isn't like CEO work technically, but it's a hat I have to wear in the company. And everyone has to wear multiple hats. Um, so that's how I think about that. Ian. I'd really like to know what are people expecting from a question about culture? What are they expecting others to give them? For me, if you don't know what culture you want, you simply don't know what you want or where you're going. So culture, my definition of culture is it's the way, it's the collective behaviors within a group of people and it's how you interact with each other. It's what you recognize and what you reward. And you definitely can't dictate or direct culture, um, but you can kind of nurture it and guide it and um, encourage certain behaviors. Um, so that's when we talk about building culture, that's really what we mean. It's about setting these behaviors and these processes about recognizing intentionally what you, you, you want to, to, to have in your collective group. Um, so I, I do think that um, the, the, the best companies have very intentional cultures. They think about the values and about the principles of which they, they operate with each other and how they behave. Um, but it is somewhat of an emergent organism. It goes back to the gardening gardening metaphor. Um, so in terms of the team question, I'm going to guess that this is around Ranger's culture building questions. Um, which, so the way we think about the, the, the team building questions in Ranger is that um, in modern workplaces, whether you're remote or not, there's, there's often not many opportunities to connect on a sort of emotional emotional level. And um, what we've learned from all the research is that psychological safety is the endpoint, but what are the precursors to psychological safety? So psychological safety is built on um, trust. It's built on belonging, which is built on trust, which is built on emotional vulnerability. And that's being able to be open about yourself, be open about your, your risks, your fears, and, and, and not worry about um, reprisal or judgment from, from your team. So what we do in the team building questions in these like icebreakers is essentially encourage a, a moment of micro vulnerability um, every day. It's like you show the, the, your team something about you, which might seem really silly, like what did you, what's your favorite food? Um, but it's actually this powerful habit which then makes you more open to the rest of the team. So when you're going into these other collaborative or um, exercises or doing the rest of your work, you've got that, you're slightly one leveled up. Um, and the important thing for us is also it's integrated into the work stream. So there's this phenomenon where you have these team building exercises where you go off an offsite and then you come back to the office and, and you get, go back to your work and you leave all the team building 
stuff on the team building offsite and you go back to your old behaviors. So it's very important to integrate these team building moments into the work stream. Otherwise, you essentially have like these two, two separate um, cultures. You have the culture of socializing outside work and then you have the culture within, within the office or within the, the, the virtual office. Uh, which is how you behave to each other um, on a day-to-day basis, and I, I think I had like realizations around that where I'd, I'd be out with happy hours with people and like talking and being really happy, and then I'd get kind of frustrated with them over a code review or a doc, and probably treated them not super kindly and fairly. So we need to remind each other that you know we're human, we're on the same side, we have a common goal, um, and that has to be deeply integrated into all the work processes. Sanford, how do you split up your days starting a remote company? Do you have days when you do certain work? Um, I think this is, I'll talk abstractly about this to begin with, um, rather than just me. Um, I think this depends on your energy levels and how you like to work. And um, I've coached people through this exercise and there's essentially like two extremes, um, which as as a programmer nerd, I call like vertical or horizontal sharding. Um, but what I mean by that is that some people prefer to have a day of focus time. So if you're doing a day on coding, you, ha- you say Wednesday is my coding day and I'm just going to block that out and do coding. Other people prefer to have horizontal blocks of time. So in the morning they do um, some coding work in the afternoon. They may do you know, investor meetings or, or, um, or like one-on-ones, whatever. But it's essentially breaking down your day. Um, and I think it depends on your energy levels, how introverted, extroverted you are. Um, uh, and uh, just the, the nature of the work at any given moment. For me, um, I, I follow much more of a sort of GTD methodology um, that get things done. And by that, I mean, if something is going to take me less than five minutes, I will just do it to get it off my, off my plate and out of my mind. So I, that might make it seem like I'm interrupt driven, but really what it means is I, I don't want to store things in my mental cognitive space um, for, for longer than necessary. Um, so I do sketch out my day in the morning. I use range, of course, um, to sketch out my day. It has meetings. I have coding tasks that I want to get done. But then through the day, I essentially pull things off that list in a pretty um, random way based on how inspired I'm feeling or how motivated I'm feeling to do different types of work. Um, and then you know I set myself deadlines if, if, if necessary. Um, but I think one thing about starting any type of company, whether it be remote or not, is that um, there's just a lot to do and a lot is urgent. And that means that you may lay plans and have grand schemes for what you're going to do for over a two week basis. But then on like Tuesday, everything goes to shit and then you have to, um, to reassess that. Um, so you, you just have to get, get good rolling with the punches and enjoy the roller coaster. Um, Jason um, asks, what do we lose by being remote and how do we get back if we stay remote? So the biggest thing you lose by um, going remote is these chaotic interactions that happen in the workplace. So if you've looked at Pixar and um, what they did there when they were designing the offices is they designed the offices to create these random chaotic interactions in common spaces. So they architected where the offices and the toilets were and where the kitchens were. So people would run into each other. And those interactions are both a use for transmitting information and sharing data but also renewing belonging cues. And the belonging cues is, again, goes, what goes back to psychological safety and trust. So when, when you don't have those common spaces and those common interactions, you, you lose a lot of those informal ad hoc interactions, which actually build the fabric and the foundation for, for, for healthy teamwork. So when we 
go remote, you have to think very intentionally about how you build those that fabric, and um, and it's it's more difficult, but it can actually be, if done well, can be more effective and also more inclusive, which is which is um, an unexpected uh, benefit of of some of these remote operations. So the the again, it goes back to the cadence and and charting out charting out your your week or your weeks or your month. And thinking about the interactions um, that the team has, and and they some of these interactions have to be um, about work, about information, like what information you're sharing, how you're sharing context, how you're making decisions. Some of it is about building connections. So, how do you remind each other that you're all humans and that you're all you know you all actually like like each other? Um, uh, and the way we've structured our week is we. Like I said, we we start the week with a, a briefing. It's an all hands. We have a, a an agenda that we run through every week. Everyone does a check in where they get to say how their how their weekend was and how they showed up. We review objectives and we get aligned on the week. We talk about any big successes, and then we move into our team meetings. And the team meetings an opportunity for the teams to kind of like renew their belonging and alignment. And then throughout the week, we sprinkle kind of social activities, so virtual happy hours or um, we, we're doing kind of like team building games. Um, but you can't do just the, those things. Like if you do just the virtual happy hours and just the team games, it's not integrated into the work, and then it's it kind of feels sterile and um, it, it's it's feels separate. So you have to think about every every meeting or every opportunity. How are you addressing the cultural needs, the information needs, um, and the alignment needs? Um, it's it's difficult. But if you look at companies like Zapier or Envision, um, they, they they they've done a really great job at, at building that foundation. Uh, you said you met Evan Williams at the Grove. What's your go-to meal? My favorite breakfast burrito in SF. Um, probably um, one of the egg dishes, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't have a very good memory for food. I kind of just—it's very utilitarian. Like it's cal- calories. <laughs> also happy to follow up on Twitter or in the Twist Slack group if anyone wants to hit me up with questions. Happy to talk about this in there complete nerd about organizational management stuff. Thanks for listening to Dan Pupias's Ask Me Anything. If you'd like to participate in weekly AMAs and discuss all aspects of startup life with Jason and our community of 25,000 founders, join us at thisweekinstartups.com slash slack. Thanks again to Dell, Silicon Valley Bank, and Clavio for making this possible.